our God, would you guide us now as we come before your word? Would you humble us and help us to believe? Would you deepen our trust in you and give us strength to follow you? Touch our hearts now by your spirit. Bring light to our hearts and minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the verses in your bulletin are, are different than the ones we're reading. We'll start in verse 42. This is the end of, the of what we talked about last week, but we'll pick up this verse. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 42. This is God's word. Jesus said, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a rock with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word. We're in now of Mark's gospel. Oh, it's been a long, we've, we've been in Mark now for almost a year. We're almost done, just a few weeks away. And just a reminder to us, as we read the Gospels, or really as we read any book of the Bible, we're not looking here at, at surveillance camera footage. We're not seeing you know, exactly every tiny little detail as it's being played out. These are not just bald facts or events. This is an account of the events. And of course, Mark and the other gospel writers are bound to tell the truth. Uh, they're not, they don't just get to invent things and make things up and, and report them as they wish. But they also do tell the truth in a particular way so that we will understand it. Uh, there have been many, you know, I have a, a lot of friends who, who aren't believers, and, and, and some, when they talk to me about the Bible, they say, well, the writers of the Bible, they were, they were biased. And my response is, of course they were. Of course they were biased. I mean, these guys had walked with and followed Jesus, and in that process, they came to believe him. They came to believe that Jesus really is the Christ. He really is the Messiah. They came to have faith in the gospel or the good news about Jesus. 
And they came to trust him when he said hard things like, take up your cross and follow me. And so as Mark and these other writers are writing, they're wanting us then to also get that. They want us to have that same experience as we see Jesus, that we would grow in our belief, that we would grow in our faith in him, and that we would grow in our trust in him. So the writers of the Gospels, then, as they tell the story of Jesus, tell it in slightly different ways. Uh, There are other Gospel writers who have unique details that aren't in Mark's Gospel. So, for example, uh, these aren't aren't contradictions, so it doesn't need to be troubling to us. They're just highlighting different pieces. Uh, John's Gospel, for example, uh, totally leaves out the part about Judas kissing Jesus. And, And instead, he highlights the fact that Jesus says, I'm here guys. I'm the one you want. Luke uh, gives us the interesting detail about when the guy's ear gets chopped off that Jesus heals it, which is always the really interesting part when you look at the Jesus film things. You go, ah, that looks really gross. How did that happen? Luke's the one that gives us that detail. And and Mark gives us detail about Jesus, uh, or Matthew gives us an interesting detail about Jesus uh, saying, hey, if I really needed help, I could call down tons of angels. Mark also gives us an interesting detail in this account of the garden. Mark gives us the naked guy at the end. Isn't that weird to you? You know, all this is like, oh, Jesus is in the garden. It's the night before he dies. And every time I read it, I almost, I I mean, maybe it's just me, but I kind of chuckle. Like the image of this guy who's following Jesus grabs him and like he pulls away and it rips his clothes off and then he just... You know, I don't want to be too silly, but he runs away naked. What, what an odd detail to include. What an interesting sort of out-of-place little piece that we don't even know who this guy is. Now, some over the centuries, and I tend to agree with this, say that the naked guy here is Mark himself. That uh, Mark was not one of the 12 apostles, but he was a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. So this is a way of saying, I was there, guys. I saw this happen. Even though what he tells about himself is pretty embarrassing. And the embarrassing part is not just because he ran away naked. The most embarrassing part is that he ran away. Now, some of that's speculation. Uh, We don't know who this guy is. Mark doesn't tell us it's him, so I don't want to make too much of it. Whoever it was, this is what that man saw. As he's in the garden watching what happens, he sees a league of forces, of powers, of muscle exercised against Jesus. Look at the way Mark talks about it at the beginning of the text in verse 43. Immediately while he, Jesus, was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. We know Judas is one of the twelve. Mark has already told us that, but he's reminding us here that one of the forces against Jesus is one of his own people. They have strength from the inside. They've got a double crosser, an insider, a spy, if you want to put it that way. Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd. They've got strength in numbers. 
with swords and clubs. So they have strength and physical force. And from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, so they have strength in jurisdiction or religious authority. And in order to bind Jesus up, they would have had to bring some form of police even with them so that they could carry him away. They pull all these resources together. They gather all that they have, all the power and resources that they can get to pull together to seize Jesus. Now, the question for us then is this. What does Jesus do in the face of the powers against him? What would you do? Uh, science tells us that a natural response in the, in the face of a threat like this is one of two things. You've heard this before, I'm sure. Fight or, or flight. Fight or flight. And we actually see these played out in some parts of this section of Mark the fight part. So, so this crowd comes in, they've got uh, torches, the other gospels say, and swords and clubs and all of these things. And so, of course, then the natural instinct for some will be, you've got to fight fire with fire. The only way to stop a bad guy with a sword is a good guy with a sword. And one of the disciples uh, takes out this sword and, 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 and hacks off a guy's ear. John tells us that this was Peter, who had the sword. We don't know exactly his motive for this. Perhaps Peter was trying to prove his loyalty to Jesus, especially after he had just been told by Jesus that he would deny Christ three times. But for whatever reason, he, he, he pulls out this sword and goes, I'm going to defend Jesus, and, and he, goes, he goes for the guy and cuts off his ear. Now, let's think about this for a second. If you're going to cut off a body part by swinging a sword, an ear is a really hard body part to get, isn't it? You know, it's not sticking out there, I guess, for some. You know, it's a little easier than others, maybe. But, but if, if, you're, if you're going to get the ear, he's not gunning for the ear here. What's he shooting for? The head. Peter is not messing around here. He goes... Let me fight for Jesus, pulls out a sword, a sword and, and, and swings, and, and fortunately for this guy, he, he must have tilted or ducked or whatever, but, but, but it gets only part of his, of his ear. Peter is gunning for a fight. Jesus, on the other hand, says, stop it. Peter, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could have called down 12 legions of angels. Legions, by the way, are 6,000. I could have called down thousands of angels to help. Jesus here doesn't fight. Well, let's look at, let's look at the other one then. Let's look at flight. Jesus had just said recently at the beginning of chapter 14 that, that yeah, they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that happens at the end of this text in 15, or 15, 50. And they all left him and fled. That even happens with the naked guy. 
the naked man, you know, at this time he's not yet naked, but he starts to kind of follow, and he's described as a young man. That's all we really know about him. He's young, he's healthy, strong, a strapping young guy, and he's wearing a linen cloth. Now, at that time, what would be common is to wear clothes that are wool. If you wear linen, that's probably because you're wealthy. This guy was probably rich. So, in the end, then, not even his health or his wealth would keep him from running away. But for Jesus, Jesus does not run. He does not flee. Some now say there's, there's a third option. So we've got a, a fate, a, a, the face of something that's really difficult, so my natural response is fight or flight, or there's now this kind of third category that they're trying to put a nice little, uh, you know, matching, uh, starting with the letter F, I guess, fight, flight, or what is it? Some call it freeze, or some call it flop, that you, that you just kind of give up. Let it, whatever happen, what, whatever's going to happen, I'll just let it happen. It reminds me of, of, of when uh, Eliza... Um, uh, is, is petting the cat. <laughs> you know, she can crawl now a little bit, so she is a little more mobile, and she gets to the cat, and she, very <laughs> gentle, gentle, we say, but boy, she really grabs onto the cat. And the cat now, of course, then does what? Just kind of tilts over and just sort of like takes it. It's just going to happen. You know, we have to stop in and rescue her. But that's what it reminds me of, that this flop or, or freeze Jesus doesn't do that either. His first response in this, even though he goes with them willingly, is not to just stick out his hands and go, fine, take me, do whatever you want. His first response is actually to call them out on their cowardice, on the fact that they're afraid of public backlash. You can see it in in 49 and 48. You know, he says, guys, listen, I was with you in the temple every day. You saw me every day. Why didn't, why didn't you take me there? What am I, a robber? And he's saying, I, I know you're afraid. I know you're afraid this is going to cause some public outcry. Jesus isn't just rolling over and taking it here completely. He's not a coward. But he does go with them. In the face of the powers against him, Jesus does not fight. He does not flee. He does not flop or freeze. So what's the alternative? What does he do instead? Jesus faces them. You can see it at the end of 49, after he calls them out about being in the temple. Why didn't you seize me then? And he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. He faces not only them, but the events that are playing out. In my favorite sections, the reason why we pulled back in 42, at the end, he's been praying in the garden with, with, with his disciples as these guys come up, and, and he says as they're coming up, rise, let's, let's be going, says my translation. Get up, guys, let's go. And not let's go so we can leave, let's go toward them. Jesus faces what he's about to experience. Now, 
The question in my mind then is this. How can Jesus face this? And the answer simply is because he knows that he can trust his Father. He knows he can trust his Father. That is not a natural response for us. That is not a place we naturally go to learn to trust God as something that must be learned. You remember we've talked some about how this is a new exodus in some ways. So in Exodus chapter 14, you know the story. The, the people of Israel had been um, in Egypt for hundreds of years and let my people go, Pharaoh, let my people go. You know all the story. And, and finally, you know, ten, the ten plagues and Pharaoh lets them go. Yay, we're, we're out of here. Let's go. And then soon after, Pharaoh changes his mind. Oh, man, we had this in the bag. That's where we get to in Exodus chapter 14. Here's just a, a few verses here. 14, starting in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we'll serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The rest of the story we know is when he parts the Red Sea, and they go through, and then he folds the Red Sea over on top of the Egyptians until we get to verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You can see what happens here. The Lord exercises his power so that they will see that he is God. And they come to fear him, to, to in some way reverence him, and also to believe in him from this. That when they look at this, this would increase their faith and that this would help them then to face trouble. Now, it's at this point that some will say or maybe even think in their minds, wait a minute, Nathan. What if I face Trouble. What if I do this like Jesus and, and I'm not rescued? And we know that we have to be wise about this. We don't want to be naive or oversimplify this. And, you know, of course, if, you're, if your house is, is on fire, you don't stand still and go, oh, the Lord will fight for me. You know, like, get out. Flight's a good thing in that context. And, and we also know that there are times in which the Lord actually does call his people to fight. But on the whole... We know that we can face 
evil or face trouble because we can trust God. We want that to be our first response to trust God. Now, it's still a good question if someone says, Nathan, what if, what if I face evil? What if I, what if I trust God and I still am not rescued? What if, I, what if I stand up to my boss on something that I know is unethical in my company and I get fired? What if I befriend that really awkward person that gets teased all the time and as a result, I get teased too? What if I work real hard at my job and I'm responsible with my finances and I'm honest actually on my taxes and still there's not enough money and I'm at risk of losing my house? What if I pray and pray and I go to all the medical checkups and still the cancer sets in? Or what if, like the Reformers, 500 years ago, I speak out against wrong things that are happening in the church, and as a result, I'm ostracized or even killed? On some level, none of these things should be particularly surprising to us. We know that Jesus faced evil head-on greater than we ever could or can, and he was still arrested. He was still tried. He was still beaten. He was still killed. And yet Jesus was glorious in the end. That will be true of a believer, too. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8. Maybe some of you are already going there and your head's ahead of me. And if you are, good. That makes my heart happy. The Jesus victory does something for us. Romans in chapter 8, starting in verse 35, Paul says this about us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shelter or distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness, danger, sword, as it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, depth, anything else in all creable to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul here is not naive. He'd been through this himself. He knows the reality of tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness. He'd seen it all, and he says it all may come, but that will not be able to take from you that which is most important. It will not be able to separate you from the love of Jesus. Not the highest powers can take that from you. And as a result, then, he says, we are are more than conquerors in all of these things through Christ who loved us. Paul says it a little differently in Philippians. 
He says there's a secret to these things, which I think is a funny, there's, there's a trick. There's a, there's, a, there's a secret to facing hard things. And, and, and normally when I hear the word secret, you know, there's a lot of books, the secret to success or the, the secret to something, I, you know, part of me rolls my eyes and goes, all right, what else is new under the sun? But, but, but Paul here um, says something, there's a, there's a secret here, and, and you'll recognize this verse. It's very common to us, so it's not that secret, I suppose. But in Philippians chapter 4, he says this in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's the big secret. You know, trust Jesus. That's not new. And, and we know this verse gets abused all the time, right? That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You put it on the back of your jersey while you're running a marathon. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or, 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 or you know, you get your zipper uh, stuck in your coat, you know, that little piece of cloth that just uh, sticks in there. And, you know, you can't get it up or down. It's just... Uh, Oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't care either up or down. I just want something. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a part of that. So we use that verse sometimes inappropriately. Perhaps in the moment with the zipper, we need the strength of Christ here to produce in us patience. Maybe a little perspective. Maybe a little bit of self-control. But the essence of this verse is that Paul says, whatever the circumstance... Jesus will give us strength to face trouble and to follow him in holiness. Now, if we go back to Mark in 14, so Mark's telling us about Jesus here, and we know that Jesus' main purpose in doing this in the garden is not primarily to teach us how to face every difficulty. Jesus here in the garden is not giving a seminar on bullying, and he is not teaching us you know, a, a self-defense class, although that would be maybe really interesting. What would Jesus say in a bullying seminar or a self-defense class? But that's not what he's doing here. Primarily here, Jesus in the garden is surrendering himself over to death to save us from sin. This is what he said earlier in the gospel, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason why we need to see this is because this is our Lord. We want it then to strengthen our faith in him, to, to strengthen our trust in him, that we would see how he responds in the face of the greatest trouble. Uh, there's a vivid account of this in the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is a, just a fiction novel, but if you haven't read it, shame on you. Look how small that is. You can handle that. Uh, no, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis, and, and if you don't know anything about it, there's, there's a character in it, Aslan, who's, who's a lion, 
uh, who we recognize as, as, a, as a picture of Jesus. There's an account very similar here to what happened in the garden. C.S. Lewis writes this. There was a howl, and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing toward them. And for a moment, even the witch herself seemed to be struck with fear. And then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried. The fool has come. Bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and for him to spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch, and the hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarves and apes, rushed in to help them, and, and between them they all rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his forepaws together, shouting and cheering as if they'd done something brave. Although, had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh. We know, of course, this isn't the end of the story, that the lion of Judah will roar again in full power. But here, at least, in this story and in the garden, we're seeing a unique display of his power. We see the quiet strength of Jesus, a strength that does not need to fight, that does not need to flee, that does not need to freeze or to flop. This is a strength that can face even the darkest powers. This, then, is the same Christ who strengthens you, Christian, to take up your cross and to follow after him. So then, even when the crowds march strong against you, we don't need to gather our own mob. We trust that Christ is our strength. And, and, and even when someone leans in to give us a kiss to our face but reaches around behind to, to put a stab in our back, we don't need to pull out our own knives to vindicate ourselves because we trust that Christ is our strength. And when the swords are glimmering in the moonlight, we don't need to lop off ears. Trust that Christ is our strength. And when, for the sake of holiness, we stand and all others flee and leave us alone, we don't need to be afraid because we trust that Christ is our strength. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, as we see vulnerable moment in the garden at your arrest, would you 
help us? Would you increase our faith in you, knowing that you faced evils for us? Would you deepen our trust in you, because we know that you can be trusted. And we give you all thanks and all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.